Good morning. For those of you who don't know me, my name is Stephen and I am privileged every single time I stand up here to bring God's Word to you. And um, for those of you who have, haven't joined us before, we're so glad that you're here. We're in the final part of our series on Jonah. So won't you all turn with me to the book of Jonah and we're going to be looking at Jonah chapter 4. And we are starting to see throughout the series that the book of Jonah is so much more than just a, a little kiddie story about a whale. And, and we're starting to see that the book of Jonah is like a mirror to us, especially us as God's people. And, and we are seeing so uh, many complex things about our own hearts that God is calling us to change and transform. And today we're going to be looking at an aspect of Christianity which is one of the most core, beautiful, powerful parts of our faith, but which is admittedly one of the most uncomfortable and therefore often rejected aspects of our faith. So uh, it's maybe a little bit uncomfortable this morning, but as I said, this speaks to the core of how God has spoken to us and how God is calling us to engage the people around us. Now to get there, do you know that one of the biggest factors in you determining whether or not you like somebody else is actually whether or not you think they like you. So when you engage someone and you meet someone around a briar or at the rugby or here at church, it's, we're actually so egocentric. And you think you're trying to determine if they like, if, if you like them but what's really going on is there's a little feedback mechanism going back and forth where you're each going like, do they like me? Do they like me? Do they like me? All right, and if they do like you, you tend to like them and vice versa. And so when your husband comes home from the rugby and says, oh, babe, I, I met such an awesome dude today. What he's actually saying is, he likes me. He really, really likes me. That's kind of what's going on there. And the opposite is true as well. That when you meet somebody and... You walk away going, oh, I don't know if I like that guy. Usually it's because there's something in them that you picked up that they don't like you. And how often have you had this conversation? Maybe a few weeks or months later, you're in a different setting and you chat to this person and you realize, I actually like this person. How often have you said this? I thought, last time we met, you don't say this. You don't say, oh, last time I didn't like you. The way we say it is, you know, last time it seemed as if you didn't like me. And so we're such complex social creatures. And when it comes to people we like, we are willing to move heaven and earth for our friends, right? We are willing to go the extra mile. We're looking for every reason to have them in our home. We will happily go and help them move their furniture and do whatever they need and rock up in the middle of the night in their time of need. But when there are those people that we don't like, and it's mainly because we think they don't like us, we kind of move heaven and earth not to be in their space, right? And yet today we're going to be invited to look at a hard look in our own hearts, how we live this reality out, who our enemies are and how God calls us to deal with those who may not be in our immediate circle, people who are like me or people who are like. And so, just a brief overview of where we are in the book of Jonah. 
So chapter one of the book of Jonah, the Lord comes to Jonah and he says, I want you to take this message to the Ninevites, this message concerning their wickedness. Now, we try to just update you every single week that this was not just a random group of people on planet earth. God's up in heaven. He's looking down and he sees a very brutal and violent, cruel nation. And he wants to do something about it. And the way he decides to act is by calling one of his own and speaking to them and warning them about a judgment. But Jonah wants nothing to do with it. Do you remember which direction, kind of north, east, south, west, which direction Nineveh was in from where Jonah was? Kind of east, north, northeast, right? Do you remember which direction Tarshish was? All the way, it's kind of like in Spain, in, in their imagination, that's like the end of the world, literally. And so that is as far away from Nineveh as Jonah could get. And he runs there and on the way, God mercifully sends a storm and uh, the sailors, what's going on, what's going on? And eventually Jonah says, listen guys, it's me. Uh, uh, I'm running away from the Lord and just what you need to do is you need to throw me overboard. And and we think that's the end of the story. And chapter one ends with a fish engulfing Jonah. And again, in most scenarios, that would be the end of the story. But in chapter two, we see Jonah having an incredible encounter with God. As God brings Jonah to the end of himself, Jonah's not aware he's gonna survive to tell the story. As far as he's concerned, this is the end. But he realizes God's grace and mercy in bringing him to this moment in the depths of the belly of a beast. And then God says, but I'm not done with you and I'm not done with the Ninevites. So he causes the fish to vomit him up and then Jonah goes to Nineveh. He preaches a five word sermon and the entire city comes to faith. An absolutely incredible moment. And last week we spoke about how genuine their repentance was. That they heard this message from the Lord and they humbled themselves and they got down in the ashes of their repentance and and they fasted. They didn't just kind of carry on. Like, okay, I went to church, God kind of spoke and I just get going with my life. No, no, no. They stopped and they turned. They turned from their ways and they experienced the incredible compassion of God. And now we arrive at Jonah chapter four. We're gonna work our way through this book and we're gonna see an incredible challenge for us. So read with me the first three verses of Jonah chapter four. But Jonah was greatly displeased and became angry. Kind of picture him like clenched fists and veins popping out his forehead. He prayed to the Lord. Apparently it's okay to pray when you're angry. We see that in the Psalms and all over the prophets as well. He prayed to the Lord, O Lord, is this not what I said when I was still at home? Chapter one. This is why I was so quick to flee to Tarshish. I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God. Just before I move on, we know that the the Ninevites were responsible for so much bloodshed in Israel. And therefore, it should make sense that the reason that Jonah ran away from going to Nineveh is his fear of being skinned alive or something similar. And I'm sure that was part of it. But here, Jonah is revealing his true motives. The real motives was not being skinned alive. But I know you, God. I know what you're like. I know that you're a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love. A God who relents from sending calamity. Now, O Lord, take away my life, 
for it is better for me to die than to live. We're going to see just John is such a dramatic loser. And I want you to see how many times he just, I just, I want to die. All right, and he's kind of saying, I'd rather die than see your grace poured out upon these people. And so we laugh at him and we think he's absolutely nuts until we realize that this chapter is such a powerful mirror back to us. You see, I'm happy when God shows me grace. But when God shows grace to someone I don't think deserves it, something in me gets very closed-hearted and closed-minded. Something in me is able to justify why I need grace and why they don't. And the reason for that is because I, in my estimation, believe they deserve worse. And we have this internal narrative in our minds justifying why I can be so angry about this. There's an incredible story about a guy called Gordon Wilson in the town of Enniskillen, Northern Ireland in the late 80s. And if you were alive, maybe young adult, adult in this time, you would know this was the heart of the conflict between the British colonial rule and the Irish resistance. I mean, you may have heard about the IRA, the Irish Republican Army. This was the name of the the military resistance movement against the British colonial rule. Gordon Wilson was Irish, but he was not uh, an endorser of the IRA. He was a follower of Jesus Christ. And 1987, there was a town square in this town in Skillen. 1987, they gathered in the town square for Remembrance Day, that we also celebrate this as a previously colonial country, celebrating in November, a few days' time, the fallen people in the World War I and World War II. And so the town gathered in the town square, surrounded by all these buildings. And the IRA had planted a whole lot of bombs in these buildings. And they successfully detonated all these bombs. And you can imagine, imagine these walls were loaded with bombs and, and these walls just falling down on us. Well, that's what happened to this town. Their own countrymen in many ways were responsible for the deaths of so many people in this town in Northern Ireland. And people were pinned by these buildings, including Gordon Wilson and his daughter. And they were held down by this wall. They were conscious, they were injured, they were able to talk until they got rescued. Gordon Wilson made it through the night and he survived, but his daughter did not. Two days later, the BBC came to interview survivors of the Enniskillen bombing. And one of the people they interviewed was Gordon Wilson in hospital. You can actually go on YouTube and you can see the footage of him being interviewed. And this interview, remember this is long before YouTube, but this interview went viral for a very powerful reason. As the media cottoned onto this and we spoke about hope in our nation, this became one of those moments, hope for this nation. And an author called William Urie, he captured all of this and this is what he wrote. He said, no one who heard Gordon Wilson will ever forget what he said in that interview. His grace towered over the miserable justification of the bombers. Speaking from his hospital bed, Wilson described his last conversation with his daughter. She held my hand tightly and gripped me as hard as she could. And she said, daddy, I love you very much. And those were her exact words to me. And those were the last words I ever heard her say. And to the astonishment of the listeners, Wilson went on to add, 
but I will bear no ill will. I will bear no grudge, but the talk is not going to bring her back to life. I will pray tonight and every night for the men who did this, that God will forgive them. William Murray continues to comment. He says, no words in more than 25 years of violence in Northern Ireland had such a powerful emotional impact. The story gets even more powerful because a year later, to commemorate, there was a commemoration of the, the bombing that had happened a year earlier. And Gordon Wilson organized an event and he invited the IRA and he invited the media and he stood up to announce that he had forgiven his daughter's murderers. And he appealed to the IRA to lay down their violent ways. Gordon Wilson went on to become a senator and, and even now, some of you may know him as a, as a towering figure in the imagination of the Irish people. But the story's not over. One of the later presidents of the Irish Republic, Mary McCallies, comments on this and she puts it this way. She said, Gordon's words shamed us all and caught us off guard. They sounded so different from what we expected and what we had become used to. They brought a stillness with them. They carried a sense of the transcendent into a place that had become so ugly we could hardly bear to watch. But Gordon had his detractors and unbelievingly, he even received bags of hate mail. How dare you forgive, people demanded. What kind of father are you who can forgive your daughter's killers? And Mary McCallies continues to comment. She says, it was as if Gordon had spoken these words of forgiveness for the first time in human history, as if Christ had never uttered the words, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. One outspoken critic who was a Christian said to me about Gordon Wilson, surely the poor man must have been in shock. As if offering love and forgiveness is a sign of mental weakness instead of spiritual strength. And there we go. That's what Jonah chapter four is about. Here's one of God's covenant people struggling in his innermost being to deal with the fact that his enemies who had brought about violent deaths to his people could receive grace. And as far as Jonah was concerned, that made God worthy of hate mail and his anger and his clenched fists. Just by the way, there's such an interesting comparison growing here in the story. Just think about what it took to get the cruel Ninevites to repent. A five word sermon and a one day of preaching. And God brought about an incredible revival there. What did it take for Jonah to repent? One of God's people someone supposedly having God's heart. God had to send a, a mighty wind. He had to send a mighty fish. He had to send this incredible moment of grace and Jonah still didn't get it. And what we're gonna see throughout the rest of the chapter is God trying in a number of different ways to get Jonah to get it. So in this story, who actually is hard-hearted? It is Jonah, not the Ninevites. 
And the subtext of this is, how often can we as God's people sing about amazing grace? And it is well with my soul. And yet we struggle so much with those that we think don't deserve grace, getting grace from the same God who gave us grace. And sometimes we as God's people can be the least to get it and the slowest to actually get onto God's agenda when it comes to this. So let's see how God tries to get Jonah to turn around. Verse four, but the Lord replied, have you any rights to be angry? So God's first tactic is to go and have a cup of coffee with Jonah. Jonah, let's just talk about this. Can we reason through this? Do you have any right to be angry? Now does Jonah respond? He responds with the hand. Verse five, and Jonah went. He doesn't even answer God. He went and he sat down at a place east of the city. And there he made himself a shelter, sat in its shade and waited to see what would happen to the city. Now, you may remember that the, the, the message Jonah brought was 40 days and God is gonna overturn the city, all right? The revival kind of happened in day one and two. So Jonah's like, well, it seems like God has been gracious, but I'm gonna camp out here. I'm gonna build a shelter. I'm gonna get my popcorn and I'm gonna see what happens on day 39, day 40 and day 41. And so God's first tactic was to reason with Jonah and Jonah stonewalls him, Jonah ignores him, doesn't even want to have the conversation. And so God engages Jonah a second time in a different way in verse six. Then the Lord God provided a vine and made it grow up over Jonah to give shade for his head, to ease his discomfort. And Jonah was very happy about the vine. First time in the whole book that Jonah's happy. And again, I'm like, oh, maybe that's also a bit of a mirror back to us as God's people. But anyway, so Jonah is celebrating in this vine, not in God's grace. But at dawn the next day, God provided a worm which chewed the vine so that it's withered. And when the sun rose, God provided a scorching east wind and the sun blazed on Jonah's head so that he grew faint and he wanted to die. And he said, it would be better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, do you have a right to be angry about the vine? Very similar to the previous question. The previous question was saying, hey Jonah, do you have a right to be angry about me being compassionate and gracious to the city full of people who are lost and misguided, who are made in my image, who are worthy of being restored? And Jonah gives him the hat. Uh, okay, okay. Jonah is actually eventually happy about something. He's happy about the vine. The vine comes, the vine goes one day. There's no time for emotional attachments. It's not like even a pet that you've had for a few years. And Jonah wants to die again. But God says, okay, but Jonah, do you have a right to be angry? Not about the city, but about the vine. Let's just keep things simple. I do, he said. I'm angry enough to die. So dramatic. I mean, I'm so glad Jonah never had social media. <laughs> I was just picturing this guy as like a toddler. It's like screaming, dummy, happy, screaming. It's kind of how he seems to go. And 
And in Jonah's mind, he's got every right to be angry about this vine that has no brain, no capacity to love him back. And then this is how the book ends. But the Lord said, you have been concerned about this vine, though you did not tend to it or make it grow. Sprang up overnight and died overnight. But Nineveh has more than 120,000 people who cannot tell their right hand from the left. They're lost, they're misguided, they're made in my image. And many cattle as well. Do you remember last week the cattle repented too? God saw it fit to let them live. <laughs> and should I not be concerned about that great city? The end. Never noticed how weird that ending is. If this was a TV show, we'd be like, oh, HBO ran out of money. I mean, what's missing? What's missing is we want to know what happened. Did Jonah get it? What happened on day 40? Did Jonah finally see what was going on? Did Jonah get filled with so much joy and go back to his people and say, do you know what I saw God do? I was so overjoyed by that. Or did Jonah just remain a miserable, horrible man and die somewhere in the Middle East? But why do you think the story ends there? Jesus often tells stories where there's kind of this open-ended ending. When Jesus does it, when God does it, it's actually a way of saying, well, how are you going to see out the ending of the story? And we want to judge Jonah, we want to laugh at Jonah, but now the question comes to us. How are we going to respond to God's grace and God's call in our lives to understand the wideness of His mercy, the wideness of His compassion and grace, even for those that in our estimation, they don't deserve it? Now, the idea of God's grace being extended to our enemies is not exclusive to the book of Jonah. Jesus spoke about this so widely and and Paul wrote about this so widely. And and this is where we start to see that as uncomfortable as this idea is, it's at the core of the gospel. Romans 5.10 says that while we were God's enemies, Christ died for us. Now, maybe you're sitting here this morning and, and you've come to realize over the years just how you really were and sometimes are God's enemy. Set up in your heart to rather elevate yourself in the place of God in your life, number one, as opposed to Him. Now, maybe you don't go out and paint pentagrams everywhere, you know, kill people. But maybe you've started to realize just how many motives of your heart you're setting yourself up as God over God. And you've come to appreciate that that makes me God's enemy. And yet God has been so gracious to me. And for some of you, that has become such a beautiful, powerful, saving theme in your life. Maybe some of you sitting here are saying, I don't feel like God's enemy. Ah, this doesn't really make sense to me, but wow, God's word speaks about me being an enemy. And, and just somehow you're on a journey of discovering what that relationship was and what it is and what it can be. God saves us. But the point is this. In God's estimation, when he sees himself and his holiness and his righteousness, his call for us as human beings to be image bearers reigning and ruling in this world, that we fail that standard thousands of times a day. And one of the ways that God describes this to us is that we're his enemies. 
And as much as there was a bunch of people who nailed Jesus to a cross 2,000 years ago, the reality is all of us were somehow in that moment crucifying Jesus because of our sin. And the book of Romans argues, you know what, it's, it's, it's understandable when a guy lays down his life for a friend. Right, that makes sense to us. We've got lots of movies about that. But when somebody lays down his life for his enemies, that's a love that the world cannot begin to hope to understand. And that is how you and I have been saved. In other words, before we judge Jonah, before we evaluate who our friends or our enemies are, just get this. God has radically stepped into your world, saving you, taking everything that was on you upon Him in order to save you and not hold it against you, but call you friend, call you son, call you daughter of the King. And that's the gospel. And that's where we need to be starting. So maybe you're sitting here and a couple of people are coming to mind. And you're like, you know what? I can handle that I've received such amazing grace. And God, you know what? I can handle if you show amazing grace to these people. Just leave me out of it. Don't ask me to show that kind of grace to these people. And if you just kind of take notice of your inner narrative, you'll notice that you're bringing up every reason why you believe these people may be worthy of God's grace, but not yours, right? And you feel completely justified by that. And maybe there is very real and very genuine pain like Gordon Wilson and the IRA and his daughter's murderers. But then... We get this image of Jonah being pulled forward into the life of Jesus and into our life 2019. Where Jesus says in Luke 6 verses 27 to 28. But I tell you who hear me, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. And pray for those who ill-treats you. And whether you're a Christian or not, there's something in us that reads those words and says, that's crazy. That is insane. And there's something in God's heart that points to the gospel and says, no, 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 you're the ones who are crazy. You're the ones who don't get it. The beauty and the power of my kingdom when we're able to live this out. Now, Again, now maybe some of you are sitting here and you're going, okay, enemies, enemies, enemies. I don't know if I'd use the word enemy about certain people in my life. Maybe you've got in mind people who have hurt you or people who have said something about you or people who are just toxic people in your life or people in your workplace, people in your family. Maybe they're sitting next to you, just don't laugh and put, just look straight ahead at me now, right? But like enemy, I mean, you're picturing like Braveheart, like armies or missiles and bombs and you're like, no, I don't have enemies, well, let's just go to this verse. Do you know of anyone who, who hates you? Who has maybe been unjustly angry to you? Do you know anyone who's cursed you? And again, don't picture like witches and pentagrams, just someone who's spoken ill of you. Or someone who has ill-treated you. And suddenly, this is where our attention is being drawn by Jesus' words. 
And maybe our response hasn't been with missiles and, and bombs. But maybe our response has been the hand. Or Facebook, WhatsApp, gosh. And we've responded in our own ways. And again, we feel completely justified because they are enemy. God, you know what they've done. But what if they're not the enemy? And I think that's what's going on in the heart of the book of Jonah and the heart of Jesus' teachings. What if the people we think the enemy are not the enemy? I think God is trying to get us to redefine in our own mind who the enemy really is. The scriptures say very clearly that our actual battle is not against flesh and blood. Right? I've been reading a book by a guy called Russell Moore. It's a book called Onward. And he's just kind of, he's an American author, pastor, speaking into particularly the American landscape of everyone's so polarized politically and, and there's so much kind of drama on social media and in the, the various news platforms and people are becoming so divided. Christians are becoming so divided. And as I'm reading this, I'm going, this book is written for our nation too. And he says this, he says, when we don't oppose demons, we demonize opponents. And without a clear vision of the concrete forces we as the church are supposed to be aligned against, we find it very difficult to differentiate between enemy combatants and their hostages. That is so powerful. When we don't oppose demons, the people or the forces we are called to recognize as the true enemy and engage the spiritual tools and resources that God gives us in his word, in our faith, in his power, in his spirits, in his presence. We tend to, as humans, and we tend to, as Christians, demonize our opponents. And without a clear vision of the concrete forces, we as the church are supposed to be aligned against, we find it very difficult to differentiate between enemy combatants and their hostages. God is trying to say, Jonah, the Ninevites are not your enemies. They are hostages to the real enemy. And the only way they're gonna be set free is by an act of my grace. And the same is true for every single one of our lives and those that we think are our enemies, the people that we have demonized. Think how easy it would have been for Gordon Wilson to demonize the IRA. And guys, there are dozens of powerful, heart-wrenching stories like this. And stories in, in Syria and, and stories even in the world wars of people who have come to realize the wideness of God's grace and mercy. And our call as Christ followers to act justly and with love and compassion in a way that represents the gospel we believe in. And again, I know the struggle is real. I know. I know for Gordon Wilson, I can just imagine thinking about a future without his daughter 
and the painful, violent way that she, her life was taken. And I, I don't know, but I can only imagine because he's human, wrestling with God's grace and forgiveness. But choosing, choosing faith, meaning choosing to take God at his word and his character. And guys, Sean spoke to us earlier about how we as Christians can be a blessing to our nation and our next series for three weeks is gonna be about exactly that. And it is gonna be this. It is gonna be us living out the reality of the gospel in dark places and in dark moments and in moments where everything in our hearts and everything in our, notion, in our nation and our political, in, uh, economical, social circles are saying, but that's crazy. When Christians with courage live this out, that is gonna start turning the tide. One person, one family, one church, one city at a time. See, the line of good and evil runs through every single one of us. And so I don't want to end off with, yeah, six things to do. It would be very easy to do that. The Bible's full of them. I want to end off by leaving you with the question I kind of left you with earlier. What does Jonah chapter five look like in your life? You're like, but there's no Jonah chapter five. Yes, exactly. In other words, once God has brought this to your attention, his grace, his compassion in saving you, the fact that sometimes we as God's people can be more hard-hearted than those that we think are hard-hearted, and yet sometimes they can be the quickest to repent. That sometimes we are the ones to face palm God We are the ones to ignore his voice. We are the ones to ignore his heart. And when God exposes this in us, so welcome to church, all right? Once God has exposed this in us, the question is, so now what? How are you gonna live differently? And so in many ways, we all stand together at the cross. Made equal by our mutual need for God's grace and forgiveness. And many of us here have experienced that in Jesus. That doesn't make us better than anybody else. But it does invite us to live in the way of the cross. And so I want to pray a prayer and invite you to pray this prayer with me. And the content of the prayer, just so that you know, is gonna be something along these lines. God had to engage Jonah time and time again in order to help him get it. And Jonah had to send storms, sorry, God had to send storms. And God had to send miraculous fish beasts. And and God had to give Jonah a second chance when he should have possibly actually physically died. And God had to, even though Jonah had this fresh vision of who God was after encountering him in this powerful way, Jonah still never got it. And so God had to engage him again and again. And I want to pray that you invite God to engage you again 
show you His grace again. Expose your heart again. Two weeks ago, Craig spoke about the severe mercy of God. Probably the worst moment of Jonah's life turned out to be the best moment of his life. To invite God to, to, to reason with you and to use vehicles in your life, whatever, here it was a plant. Maybe there's other vehicles in your life that God can speak to you through. So my prayer is to all of us together invite you to invite God into that. Let us pray. Father, I ask for a fresh revelation in our hearts of the cross. Something for us we can sing about and we can speak about that sometimes can just fall into the category of Christianese and cliche. We know it's important, but it loses its power in our lives. And so Holy Spirit, I ask that you would enlighten the eyes of our hearts right now that this central moment of God loving his enemies, laying down his life for us, becomes so poignant, convicting and powerful and freeing in our lives. When we realize how unfair the cross was. And how even since the moment of our salvation, we have in many ways put Jesus back up on that cross. And yet you show us grace again and again. Your grace is unlimited. And so Holy Spirit, help us see that. And Father, I desire as Christ followers, not only to gather in churches and sing songs and listen to talks, but to live out the reality of the gospel in our lives, in this church, in our families, in our workplaces, in our nation, which is so filled with violence, hate, misunderstanding, enemies, branding. And so Father, we wanna invite you in the same way you walked with Jonah so graciously and we're so quick to judge him. But God, that's us. And so God, we ask you to be gracious as you walk with us. We get taken from the cross, we get stood on our two feet. We were asked to walk a cruciform, walk in this world. God, I'm asking for us as individuals in this church that the true nature of this walk of, of grace would be exposed to us in, in, in layers over the days and the weeks to come as you graciously shape us, disciple us, father us, change us. And God, our heart breaks. For those who 
have experienced hate and being labeled enemies in the name of Jesus. And our heart breaks for families that have experienced pain and, and violence in the name of Jesus. And God, I ask that you would mobilize us as a church and churches around this nation to be a fresh breath of resurrection grace in this nation. Let's start somewhere. It starts here. And so, Lord, we choose you in this. In Jesus' mighty name. Amen. Amen.